You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. On March 28, 2014, the Ottawa Red Blacks, the newest member of the Canadian Football League, went before a crowd of excited schoolchildren to make an important announcement. After a month reviewing over 3,500 submissions from the public, the team's mascot, a friendly, clean-shaven, muscle-bound lumberjack with a giant, toothy smile, finally had a name. Big Joe Mufferaw. It seemed like a great idea. At the time, the name was a fan favorite, and with good reason. It had its origins in the city's folklore and history, and it came with its own line of English-language children's books by a local historian and storyteller, and a hit song by beloved Canadian singer-songwriter Stompin' Tom Connors. These works depicted Big Joe as a giant, family-friendly lumberjack whose comedic, exaggerated exploits reshaped the landscape and history of the Ottawa Valley. Plans were already in motion to purchase the rights to the books, which had been out of print for years, and publish them for a whole new generation with new illustrations featuring the burly, jocular mascot. But just when it seemed like they had chosen the perfect name, the complaints began rolling in, and the owners of the Red Blacks realized that this lovable lumberjack of lore was a lot more complicated than they thought. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, we're examining a mythology built around one man that spans two languages and three centuries. As an historical figure, he used his amazing strength to inspire a nation during dark and uncertain times. As a legendary figure, his legacy served as inspiration for stories and songs about a hero who is larger than life. Join me as I explore the complicated history of a bona fide folk hero and explore a tale of two Joes, both giants who, in their own way, made their mark in the Ottawa Valley and early Canada. Along the way, we'll gain a better understanding of our own tumultuous history and further insight into French-English relations within Canada and the inner workings of Canadian cultural identity. This is the story of Big Joe. Part 1. Who is Big Joe Mufferaw? If you're not a fan of the Ottawa Red Blacks, not from the Ottawa Valley, and not familiar with Canadian folk music, you've probably never heard of Joe Mufferaw, so let's get introductions out of the way. Most Canadians who do know the name likely know it from one popular song. Mufferaw Joe, big Joe Mufferaw, paddle in the Mattawa, all the way from Ottawa just one day. Big Joe Mufferaw paddled into Mattawa all the way from Ottawa in just one day. Or so the song goes. The lyrics to Big Joe Mufferaw, penned by Stompin' Tom Connors, also tells us that Joe was so big and so strong that a river formed from just the sweat of his brow. That he inadvertently created the Rideau Canal by constantly treading the same path back and forth to visit his girlfriend. 
that he put out a forest fire over 50 miles away with five well-aimed spitballs, and that he created Ontario's Mount St. Patrick, just to name a few of his more monumental feats. He also apparently had a giant pet bullfrog who was bigger than a horse and faster than a train, and one time he, quote, beat the living tar out of 29 men, end quote. In short, Big Joe Mafara was a legendary lumberjack, literal giant, and folk hero set in a time when timber was king, and physical strength was the most important quality a man could possess. As Tom Connors put it, the best man in Ottawa was Mafara Joe. After its release in 1970, Connors' song hit a chord with many listeners, and it's easy to see why. It's catchy, it's silly and lighthearted, and like most of Connors' material, he makes it really easy to sing along. It also taps into the spirit of the North American founding myth, where larger-than-life characters use their enormous strength and incredible force of will to colonize the frontier and literally alter the landscape. These kinds of tall tales are a popular part of early American folklore, and feature heroes like the steel-driving man John Henry, the orchard-planting Johnny Appleseed, and, of course, Paul Bunyan. Now, if you're not familiar with that last one, Paul Bunyan is a legendary giant and lumberjack of popular American lore, who has been the subject of countless stories since the early 1900s, where he chops down entire forests with one swing of his axe, forms the 10,000 lakes of Minnesota by simply wandering the wilderness, and carves the Grand Canyon by absentmindedly dragging his axe along the ground. Some folklorists have theorized that the oldest stories of Paul Bunyan actually originated in Canadian lumber camps, and that stories of the character and his exploits found their way south thanks to the venerated storytelling skills of roaming French-Canadian loggers. The stories likely reached the States sometime near the turn of the 20th century, and the Americans, so skilled at creating their own mythology, added Bunyan to their pantheon of spiritual founding fathers. It kind of makes sense that Paul might have got his start north of the border. If there's one job that could be considered an iconic Canadian symbol, right up there with the beaver, the canoe, and maple syrup, it's a lumberjack. So I imagine that many Canadians who hear stories of Paul Bunyan can't help but feel that he seems more at home here in Canada than in the United States. What a delight, then, to discover Big Joe Muffera, who is, in many ways, a uniquely Canadian answer to Paul Bunyan. One that allows us to dabble in fun little fairy tales about the Canadian landscape, and who could be the perfect mascot for a city like Ottawa, which was, at one time, a booming lumber town. There was just one problem. Back in 2014, Jeff Hunt, one of the owners of the Ottawa Red Blacks, told the hosts of the Ottawa Morning Radio Show that he first realized there might be some controversy over their new mascot's name when a French-Canadian reporter asked if he was worried that some people might be offended by the choice. Hunt was surprised by the question. Why would anyone be offended by the name of some silly mascot? And how could they possibly be offended when that name came from a whimsical, Paul Bunyan-esque character of kid-friendly songs and stories? What he and others on the team didn't realize was that, in contrast to Paul Bunyan, whose origins have been lost in the mists of time, 
the character of Joe Muffera was still very much connected to a real person from the pages of history whose name, reputation, and legacy inspired or otherwise influenced the fictional lumberjack of legend. He was a French-Canadian lumberjack and strongman who made a name for himself in the early days of Ottawa. The name Joe Muffera is the corrupted, anglicized version of his true name, Joseph Montherrand. Unfortunately for the Red Blacks, the reporter's prediction proved true. But the feedback was simple. Pretty much everyone loved the idea behind the name, but some had a problem with its execution. They argued that, since Montferrand was a French-Canadian, the mascot should go by his actual French surname, rather than the weird, corrupted version that had become so popular. Some felt that using the English version was dishonoring the heritage of the region's French-Canadian population, and dishonoring Montferrand himself. Here, the Red Blacks had an opportunity to help reclaim the original name. But some English speakers bristled at the pushback, suggesting that the complaints were coming mainly from French-language rights activists who were going too far, being too politically correct, and getting easily offended by one trivial detail. Others complained that the Red Blacks were located in Ottawa, not Quebec, and should therefore ignore French-Canadian voices, forgetting, of course, that French-Canadians make up a significant portion of the city's population, and that thousands of French-speaking fans lived in the province that was literally just across the river. Hunt seemed to blame ubiquitous social media and a rampant mob mentality for amplifying the outrage, telling the radio show, quote, what ended up happening with the world that we live in today, with Twitter and everything else, the offense started to grow, and there was all kinds of chatter on Twitter about it, and it was really gaining momentum." End quote. A few pundits in newspapers and fan websites rolled their eyes at this perceived proto-cancel culture, complaining that some people just couldn't get it through their heads that Joseph Montferrand, the man, and Joe Muffera, the character, were two completely separate things. As one fan-made website mused, somewhat condescendingly, quote, It's disappointing that some people can't understand the difference between a legend and a person. The mascot was named after the character, not the man. End quote. But it's not that simple, as you'll soon learn. And besides, the people who complained kind of had a point. From the very beginning, the Red Blacks had been very inclusive of French Canadians, a demographic that comprised about 35% of their audience. Up until then, everything had been bilingual, from their marketing material, to their press conferences and communications, to the name of the team itself. They are both officially the Red Blacks and Le Rouge et Noir. So why wouldn't they, at the very least, simply make their mascot's name bilingual as well? He could be Big Joe Mufferat in English and Grand Joe Montferrand in French. Easy, right? Well, not really. You'll learn why later on. For now, let's put the language stuff aside for a moment and just look at the man behind the mascot. And to do that, to really appreciate the impact that Montferrand had on his community and the legacy he left behind, we need to understand and appreciate the setting of the story. The time and place that called for a man of his particular strengths and talents. The time was the mid-1800s. The place was Bytown. Part 2. 
The Gangs of Bytown Today, Ottawa, Ontario is the capital of Canada, and the nation's fourth-largest city. Like many capitals, it has a reputation for being quaint, quiet, and cultured. Along with government buildings, it's bursting with museums, galleries, and festivals, as well as lush green spaces, parks and trails, trees and beaches. It's widely regarded as one of the cleanest, safest, and most picturesque communities in North America. But it wasn't always that way. Back in the 1820s and 30s, over three decades before Canada would become a country, the village of Bytown, as it was called, was a rowdy little timber town at the confluence of two muddy rivers. The community was divided into two districts that were separated by class as much as geography. To the west, overlooking the Ottawa River, was Uppertown, home to the business moguls, politicians, and church officials. To the east, slumped in the armpit of the Rideau River, was Lower Town, home to everyone else, the butchers, the blacksmiths, the shantymen, the fishmongers, and the laborers, thousands of them, mostly Irish and French-Canadian, who had flooded the region in the hope of finding work building the Rideau Canal, one of the major engineering feats of the 19th century. Problems arose in the summer of 1832 when two catastrophic events threw the community into chaos. The first was the completion of the canal. It was an important milestone, but one that left the majority of Bytown's labor force unemployed. The second was a major cholera epidemic, killing hundreds in Lower Town and thousands more in Quebec and Montreal. The epidemic came on the heels of a plague of malaria that had risen from the mosquito-infested swamps surrounding the community and swept through the streets of Lower Town, destroying families, devastating the community, and filling the graveyard with nearly a thousand men, women, and children. Hysteria and panic followed. All of the trade between Upper and Lower Canada was now flowing through the canal, and a special wharf known as Cholera Wharf was established at the end of Sussex Street to intercept and quarantine the sick. Many residents would line the street and harass and intimidate those who made it past, hoping to stop any newcomers from contributing to the town's double epidemic of unemployment and disease. Even after the sickness had subsided, a sense of desperation lingered. For years, there was little money and little work, Yet steamships continued to arrive with decks full of men looking for jobs that didn't exist. Food was scarce. Wives, mothers, and older daughters ventured into the swamp that bordered Lower Town to pick wild herbs for their soup. If they were lucky, a chunk or two of Chicago pork would find its way into the pot. It was often rubbery and half-rancid, but it added some flavor and nutrition to the meager meal. The children did their part as well. Parliament Hill, the modern-day home of Canada's federal government, was known then as Barracks Hill, a scruffy lump of earth that poked out from the swamp and was overrun with wild white rabbits. Partly for food and partly to pass the time, kids from Lower Town would climb the hill, stalk through the stubby birch and balsam trees that lay just beyond the fort, and hunt the creatures, beating the rabbits to death with sticks. Bread was harder to source. Flour, if you could find it, sold for up to $20 a barrel, nearly twice the monthly wages of the average camp clerk. Simple loaves of bread from the baker cost an eye-watering 50 cents each, equivalent to about $16 today. 
It's no wonder, then, that many relied on alcohol, both for the calories and as a way of escape. Just 25 cents bought you a gallon of good quality whiskey, enough to make a table full of men forget their troubles, at least until a fight broke out. At night, as the town's children laid in their beds, listening to the strange sounds far out in the darkness of the swamp, the men would gather at the bars to drink, commiserate, and express their frustrations with their fists. Have you ever heard the expression, he's got a chip on his shoulder? It comes from this era, when grown men would literally place a wood chip on their shoulder and challenge another man to knock it off by any means necessary. Street fights were constantly breaking out over simple things, arguments over who was the better man, perceived insults, and simple politics. In fact, you just couldn't call it an election unless the local politicians trotted out their champions to do battle in the street and intimidate voters. Bytown was less of a community and more of a battlefield where lines were drawn, sides were taken, and gangs were formed. And none were more feared than the Shiners. No one knows exactly where the name Shiners came from, but it was synonymous with violence. A desperate man is a dangerous one, and the Shiners were all desperate men. Most were largely unskilled, uneducated, and unemployed Irish Catholics who had come to Upper Canada to build the canal. They were now penniless, jobless, and hopeless, stranded in a town that wanted them gone, and they quickly earned a reputation as ruthless, thieving thugs. They clashed with rival gangs and beat their enemies to the brink of death. Mugging and assault became a regular occurrence. Women were harassed and assaulted in the streets. Business owners were constant victims of vandalism and theft. But beyond all the violence and stolen goods, what the Shiners really wanted was power. And according to the stories, they found it with Peter Aylin. A shrewd Irish-born timber merchant, they say that Aylin chose to hire only his fellow Irishmen who continued to pour in from the dock. He gave them wages along with a trade, an identity, and a community. In return, they gave him their loyalty and declared him the King of the Shiners. Aylin is said to have focused all the anger and desperate frustration of his newfound army at his competition the French-speaking Canadiens who dominated Bytown's timber trade. With the Shiners at his command, rival camps were destroyed, timber rafts were hijacked and rerouted to Aylin's mills, houses were set ablaze, simple working men were murdered, ambushed at the choke point of bridges, beaten with clubs, then thrown over the side to drown in the rushing water below. The Shiners even stole and mutilated the horses of their enemies, anything to humiliate and intimidate their French-speaking rivals. There was no local police force, no law beyond the notions that might made right, and only the strong should survive. It was in the heat of this chaos and violence that the legendary reputation of Joseph Montferrand was tempered. Part 3. The Best Man in Bytown I say that Joe's reputation was tempered because by the late 1820s, it had already been forged in a process that began long before he was even born. 
Joe's grandfather was a French soldier who, after the capitulation of Montreal in 1760, chose to stay in the city and open his own fencing school. The Montferrand's reputation for standing up to bullies and braggarts began with him when, according to legend, he swiftly defeated a section of British soldiers who drunkenly ran amok inside his school on New Year's Eve. That strength, skill, and determination was passed on to his son, Joe's father, who worked for the Northwest Fur Company and made a name for himself in a number of skirmishes against his rivals at the Hudson's Bay Company. Joe's mother was equally formidable. Though she was the daughter of an influential and well-respected family, the lady knew how to throw a punch. They say she once came across a man beating a child and knocked him out cold with one tremendous blow. With such strength on both sides of the family, it's no surprise that Joseph Montferrand would be destined for greatness. Much of what we know about Joe comes from just one source, Benjamin Sorte's biography Histoire de Montferrand, Lethlet Canadien. Though Sorte was a respected journalist, writer, and historian, this book was published two decades after Joe had died, and it shows. While there's little doubt that he was revered as a great man, the line between fact and fiction is fuzzy here. Joseph Montferrand managed to achieve legendary status in his lifetime, so the years between his death in 1864 and the book's publication in 1884 allowed ample time for the more idealistic, over-the-top elements of those stories to grow. The result is a portrait of a hero worthy of any epic. He was 6 foot 4 inches tall and 250 pounds of pure muscle, a giant compared to the average man who would barely clear 5 foot 8 inches. He was the strongest, the fastest, the smartest of any man. He could chop down a forest, throw the logs into the water, ride the timbers downriver, then do the banking for the company that was lucky enough to hire him on. He was handsome, charming, and a natural leader. He would drink, as any self-respecting Canadien did at the time, but never enough to cloud his judgment. He would fight to the death if pressed, but do so reluctantly, dispassionately, and wanted peace above all else. He was selfless, charitable, and a natural enemy of bullies and braggarts. Some even compared him to Robin Hood and claimed he gave the prize money from his many fights to the poor. He was patriotic and pious a champion both of his people and of his faith, insisting that the men on his team go to church every Sunday. He was, in short, a paragon of truth, justice, and the Canadian way. But how did he become such an iconic hero? Joe grew up in an area known as Le Fébourg, situated between Trois-Rivières and Quebec City a community full of boxing halls, taverns, and other fighting venues. He likely learned all that he could from his father, including savate, a French style of kickboxing, before moving on to the boxing halls to learn even more. At the tender age of 16, Joe won the hearts of his neighbors when he thoroughly trounced three grown men, hated bullies who terrorized his neighborhood. A short time later, at just 17, his name became known throughout Montreal when he humiliated a renowned English boxer in the Champ de Mar. That fateful day, they say, Joe was in the audience when two boxing titans battled for the title of Champion of Canada. 
When the title was won, the announcer looked to the audience and asked if there was any man present who was brave enough to challenge the newly crowned champion for the title. Young Joe stepped forward as sounds of surprise rippled through the audience. He squared his shoulders and crowed like a rooster, their traditional method of accepting the challenge. The English boxer smirked and stepped forward, fists at the ready, eager to put the little whelp down. Imagine his surprise when, quick as a flash, Joe's fist struck his nose with the force of a hammer, sending him tumbling to the ground. They say that that single punch was more than enough to convince the champ and everyone else that day that this 17-year-old kid was the better man. According to legend, the veteran fighter immediately gave up his title and proclaimed young Joseph Montferrand to be the new champion of Canada. The next several years saw Joe rise through the ranks of every strongman and scrapper in Lower Canada, building his reputation as an outstanding martial artist with every opponent he tore down. He became known for his lightning-fast reflexes, his overwhelming strength, and his vicious and deadly kicks that could stop a man's heart. Above all else, Joe defended the honor of his fellow Canadiens, inspiring them in a newfound nationalism and proving that, though Great Britain had won the war against New France, it would never conquer the spirit of her people. In his early 20s, he defeated an American champion at Kingston. At 26, he destroyed a major of the English army in a bar at Montreal's Place d'Armes. The unruly officer, known for his severe contempt for French Canadians and considered nearly invincible by his peers, was quickly laid out after making the grave mistake of expressing his hatred out loud. Many storytellers gleefully recall the question Joe yelled out with each blow he delivered. Insulterez-vous encore les Canadiens? Will you insult the Canadians again? Finally having enough, the Major apologized through bloodied teeth and surrendered. That same year, after single-handedly defeating a group of rowdy British naval officers at the Hotel de Quebec, Joe was challenged by their captain to visit the docks and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a man who was considered to be the champion of the entire British Navy. He is of your strength and will be happy to see what a Canadian is able to do to him, the captain said. Always happy to knock the arrogant smile off a fellow fighter's face, Joe agreed. A few days later, Joe strode coolly onto the quay. A line of soldiers from the local garrison followed him, along with over 2,000 men, women, and children who were eager to see the clash of these titans. The soldiers formed a line around the fighting ring to keep the spectators out of harm's way. The cheering crowd grew quiet as the sound of heavy footsteps echoed down the dock. Then a massive shadow fell across the wooden beams and the crowd gasped in amazement. This man was truly the British Navy's greatest champion, the de facto ruler of the waves. He was as tall as Joe, but wider, leaner, the human equivalent of an English man-o-war who advanced full sail, cannons at the ready. His years in the service had sculpted every muscle, thickened his forearms into powerful weapons. And Joe worried that he had finally met his match, though he would never back down. 
The first round began, and the Navy man was boxing clever, shifting stances, countering crosses with a hook, feinting for the head, then targeting the sides. After narrowly avoiding a nasty right hook, Joe realized that while his opponent matched him in skill, Joe had him beat in strength and endurance. Suddenly, Joe knew how to win. He had to tire him out. Having devised a strategy, Joe put on a performance that would rival Muhammad Ali, dancing across the ring, weaving around his opponent, swooping in, then ducking away as the Englishman's massive arms swept through the air in a desperate attempt to make contact. Joe kept up the dance for 16 long rounds, and then, in the 17th, he finally struck. Dodging the slowest punch yet, Joe readied his arms, shot them outward, and brought them together as hard as he could on either side of his opponent, crushing the man's kidneys. It was as if Joe had toppled a tree. In one clean cut, the pride of the English Navy came crashing down. As the Englishman was carried to the infirmary, the captain declared Joseph Montferrand to be the champion of the five parts of the world and rewarded him with a cash prize somewhere in the thousands. Joe accepted the title, but refused the money, telling the captain to give it to the poor or to his opponent, as he would need it to aid in his recovery. Impressed with Joe's strength and compassion, the captain invited Joe to join his crew. Come with me, he said. I will have you travel around the world with me and will treat you like a good friend. To begin, let us have dinner. But Joe would deny this offer as well. Laughing, he replied, J'irai dîner avec vous à bord, mais nous n'irons pas plus loin ensemble. Si vous saviez comme je ne suis pas attaché à l'argent, et combien il m'en coûterait de partir de mon pays, we'll dine with you on board, but we will go no further together. If only you knew how I'm not attracted by wealth, and how much it would cost me to leave my country. It was clear that Joe had great love for his people and his country, and felt that he would do more good here at home than abroad. By the time Joe came to Bytown, he was in his prime, a proven champion a dozen times over, and the chief foreman of a lumber camp. He walked into what Sult described as a continual state of war, and would serve as a general in the battles ahead. His reputation preceded him, and he regularly met others who would challenge him to fight and demand that he prove that he was the best man in Bytown. Joe never backed down, and when the Shiners or any others sought to push the Canadiens, Joe was there to push right back. When five armed men attempted to steal his men's wages, Joe knocked three of them out and carried the two others to the proper authorities. When a group of Shiners attacked or stole from a friend, Joe would pay them a visit. Even simple insults lobbed at one of his fellow Canadiens were enough to prompt an enthusiastic reply. One story tells how a group of Shiners were staying at a Canadian-owned boarding house when they decided to throw an informal dance and invite every woman in town, but the hospitality stopped there. When the owner's son tried to join the festivities, he was quickly thrown out by the Shiners and told that, quote, one Canadian was one too many, end quote. Word of the insult spread quickly through the town until it reached the ears of Joe. 
Incensed, he ran through the town, stormed into the party and up to the musicians, and, stretching one enormous hand across the face of the fiddle, he crushed it between his fingers. It was clear that the Shiner's party was officially over. Word of the French-speaking giant reached the ears of Martin Hennessy, a rival riverman, legendary strongman and fighter, and occasional enforcer for the Shiners, who decided to publicly mock Montferrat and challenge him to a fight. It wasn't long before Joe met Hennessy in a tavern with a number of Shiners at his side. They closed the doors of the tavern and surrounded him. Though he was backed into a corner and severely outnumbered, Joe held his own and threatened that, if they didn't fight fair, he would use his feet. The Shiners, knowing of the legendary footwork of the great Canadien, backed off and opened the doors, allowing Joe and Martin to square off. According to Sulte, Joe was victorious after wearing down his opponent, swinging for his face with both fists, and, quote, crushing him like a cooked apple, end quote. After the defeat of their champion, the Shiners knew that their entire operation was at risk while Joe worked the rivers and roamed the streets of Bytown. But it seemed that no man alive was up to the challenge of taking him down. The easiest way to kill a bear is to set a trap, and that's exactly what they did. Legend has it that one day Joe was strolling the streets of Bytown and headed for Wrightstown on the other side of the river, just across the Union Bridge, which spanned the roaring, deadly Chaudière Falls. He knew that the Shiners often loitered by the bridge, and never one to seek trouble, asked a woman at a nearby stall if she had seen any of the gang hanging around. She smiled and told him no, the bridge had been quiet for most of the day. Satisfied with the answer, Joe began to cross. But when he was halfway across the bridge, an army of angry shiners, armed with clubs, appeared from the shadows at the opposite end and moved toward him. Some say there were 20 men, some say 50, others scoff and say no, there were at least 150 thugs ready to take our hero down. Whatever their number, they stood shoulder to shoulder and moved like a great wave across the bridge eager to pull him under. Joe turned to run and saw the woman who had so kindly reassured him close and lock the gate. He was trapped with the wall of enemies drawing ever closer and the roaring falls of the river on either side. Stealing himself, Joe stepped forward, a brash move that made his enemies hesitate. He scanned the sinister faces and the savage-looking clubs clenched tightly in their thick hands. What he did next would shock his attackers and be talked about for the next 200 years. In the blink of an eye, Joe reached down with his long arms, seized the nearest man by the feet, and swung him screaming through the air like a cudgel. There were dull cracks of breaking bones and cries of pain as he battled away the front lines of his assailants and knocked them to the ground. Flinging his helpless weapon like a ragdoll into the crowd, he scooped up the shattered remains of the human wall and, holding them by their waists, flung them into the abyss of the raging river below. The fools who failed to run away at this demonstration of incredible strength soon had their heads and torsos crushed by a flurry of fists that struck like a sledgehammer. 
The battle was over in minutes, and the crowd of bystanders who assembled on the riverbank never forgot the carnage that they had seen. The scene was horrible, one witness said. Blood was running from the parapet into the river. The battle at Union Bridge would become, in the minds of many Canadians, symbolic of their entire community's strength and resilience, and an example of their resolve to never fold, never back down, even in the face of incredible pressure and overwhelming odds. The act of Montferrand swinging a man like a club would become a defining part of his legacy, matched only by the countless stories of him leaping into the air in a spectacular kick and slamming his boot heel into the ceiling of a tavern. Legend has it that one tavern in particular made a fortune when folks from far and wide flocked to the business to get a glimpse of Big Joe's calling card. These two feats of strength have been kept alive for centuries and are referenced in Tom Connor's song. By the early 1840s, much of the violence had come to an end. In 1835, the people of Bytown, tired of the constant chaos and bloodshed, went on to form the Bytown Association for the Preservation of the Peace. Armed with pistols, their nightly patrols helped to restore order in the streets. The establishment of the Ottawa Lumber Association the following year helped to quell the violence even further. With Peter Aylin acting as one of its officers, the association took steps to, quote, improve the movement of timber, end quote, which, according to the Historical Society of Ottawa, likely meant protecting Aylin's timber interests from angry French Canadians. The so-called King of the Shiners would eventually leave Bytown and settle across the river in Sims Landing, where he would become a respected member of the community. The age of the Shiners came to an end. The animosity between rival gangs faded, and by the time of Confederation, the disparate groups of Bytown became a community. Joe Montferrand retired to Montreal sometime in the 1850s, reasonably wealthy, but in permanent pain from a lifetime of backbreaking work. He died in 1864, three weeks before his 62nd birthday. Four years later, a young Wilfrid Laurier wrote of his admiration for the man. He said, quote, Aucun nom après celui du Grand Papineau no name after that of the great Papineau has become more popular wherever the French language is spoken in the land of America. This reputation was not a fleeting reputation, born and dead in one day. It is intact and alive. It has been preserved for transmission from father to son. The secret of this popularity is that Joe Montferrand combined all the features of the national character, each as fully developed as human nature can allow. In him, undaunted bravery, muscular strength, thirst for danger, resistance to fatigue. These distinctive qualities of the people of 50 years ago were pushed to an almost miraculous degree. In a word, Joe Montferrand was the most truly Canadien of Canadiens. And if only for this reason, his life, as well as his name, deserves our attention. But it wasn't just French-speaking Canadians who loved him. Both in his lifetime and long after his death, folks of all backgrounds would share the stories of his epic battles and amazing feats of strength. 
Older folks who claimed to once work the river with the great Joe Montferrand would tell their stories to their wide-eyed grandchildren, who, in turn, grew up to have grandchildren themselves who also heard the stories. Like their eager audience, the tales grew taller over time. Part 4. The Manufacturing of a Myth Tales of Montferrand's might were carried by lumberjacks throughout multiple provinces, and south across the border to the lumber camps and timber towns of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. There, he was eventually integrated into Paul Bunyan stories as Joe Mafra, a French-Canadian rival, and more commonly, Paul's personal cook. Closer to home, in the Ottawa Valley, the stories were as plentiful as they were colorful. Similar to how the Battle of Union Bridge saw the number of shiners grow from 20 to 50 to 150, depending on the storyteller, Joe grew from 6 foot 4 inches tall to 8 feet to 10 feet to as tall as the trees themselves. He went from embedding his boot heels into a ceiling to kicking the entire roof off the tavern. He tamed a wild moose and kept it as a pet. One moment he's balancing a 250-pound plow on his chin and going for a stroll down Wellington Street. The next he's lifting that plow at arm's length with one hand and using it to give directions. When an older woman found a giant rubber heel in her flower garden, she and her daughter proudly declared that it belonged to none other than Joe Montferrand. Measuring 15 feet around, the heel would have fit a size 21 boot. The woman had first heard legends of the giant Montferrand from her grandfather sometime in the 1920s. He said he was so big, he had a moose as a pet, and so strong that he could cut through a four-foot tree with four whacks from his axe. He was so big and so strong, his cut crew didn't need any horses to move their lumber. Joe would simply place the fallen trees on his massive shoulders and hurl them into the river. If a fight broke out at the bar, Joe would clear the entire place by grabbing each man by the back, lifting them into the air, and banging them together until they were ready to quit. That's all there was to it, she told one folklorist. Nobody in this whole Canada could have any bigger foot than Joe Mufferaw. When a long, mysterious cord was discovered strung across the tops of several trees, the locals reasoned that it was Joe who had placed them there. When an old hunting knife was found embedded in a tree 15 feet off the ground, it was Joe's knife. And when a raspberry plant was spotted growing high on the limb of a towering tree, sure, it may have grown from a seed left by a bird or a squirrel, but some folks swore that it was Joe who planted it. After a few generations of this kind of storytelling, the name Montferrand transformed among some English speakers into odd anglicized corruptions like Mafra, Mofferro, and Mafferro. And in places like the Ottawa Valley, those words became whimsical nicknames and nouns synonymous with the term tall tale. That was the experience of author and historian Bernie Bedore, who grew up in the Ottawa Valley in the 1930s. His parents managed a hotel in Renfrew and then in Arnprior, and as a boy, Bernie would hang around the lobbies and listen to the conversations of all the old shantymen who gathered there, steeped in what he called an atmosphere of old-time storytelling. He remembered one particular name coming up multiple times, but only as a nickname. 
He wrote, quote, They used to say when somebody was going down the street in a great big fur coat, there goes old Joe Muffera. Or they'd say to some little gaffer, come here, little Joe Muffera, while I pull your ear, end quote. Bedore claimed that he never thought to ask them about the meaning or the origin of the name, nor did he hear any of the stories about Joe Montferrat that at one time had been so prevalent. He simply noted the name as a curiosity and carried on. Years later, in the winter of 1949, Bedore was working in the city of Toronto's Department of Tourism. His secretary was interested in the geography and place names of southern Ontario and would often ask him about the geological origin of certain landmarks. How was Lake Nipissing shaped the way it was? What formed the Laurentian Mountains? That kind of thing. Now, Bedore was no geologist, but he did have a thorough education in the art of tall tales, so he made up whimsical stories about a giant shantyman who sculpted the Ontario landscape one adventure at a time. The lake was the result of Joe throwing logs like javelins, which created an enormous hole that eventually overflowed with water. The famous mountain range was the result of Joe clearing a log jam by plowing the river with his pet moose broadaxe, and absentmindedly kicking at the furrow as he walked. Bedore would spin his yarns off the cuff and would never think much about it until the following spring. He was about to leave his job in Toronto and return to the valley when his secretary presented him with a very special gift, a sheaf of papers containing every single one of the stories he had told her, about twelve in total. She had remembered and recorded them all. Flattered that she had held his stories in such high regard, Bernie brought his stories home and reworked them and readied them for publication. Just one thing was missing a singular character to tie all of those stories together. He thought back to that mysterious name he had heard so often as a child, and Joe Muffera, Bedore's gentle giant of the Ottawa Valley, was born. Bernie Bedore first had a number of his stories printed in Ontario newspapers, then in a small self-published chapbook in or around 1963, and then in a series of commercially published books, starting with Tall Tales of Joe Muffera in 1979. He would go on to form a company called Muffera Enterprises Limited, which produced songs, oral versions of Bedore's stories, and a short-lived TV show known as Muffera Land. It's important to note that, according to Bedore, none of his stories came from, or were even inspired by, the oral traditions of the valley. In fact, he says it wasn't until after he had published a few of his stories in a local paper that he learned about his character's namesake, Joseph Montferrat. He said that, while the anglicized name Muffera had lingered, the history, legends, and tall tales associated with the man had long been forgotten by the time he was a boy. That was gone out of the valley, he told one interviewer. You see, he died in 1864, and it was in the 1930s that I listened. So what have we got there? A gap of 70 years. He was gone from the valley. Just the Muffera name was left." End quote. While that may have been Bedore's impression, it turns out that the oral stories of Montferra did hang on, at least in some parts of the valley. The woman who found Montferrand's alleged boot heel was sharing her stories and showing off the heel preserved in a jar of rainwater until at least the 1970s. 
And according to the book Stompin' Tom Connors, The Myth and the Man by Charlie Rindress, the legendary music man was inspired to write his song Big Joe Muffera after attending a party at a Valley farmhouse sometime in the late 1960s. The party was full of music, dancing, and storytelling, and after, presumably, jamming with the other musicians, Connors apparently met an older man who was sitting in the corner, listening to and enjoying all of the anecdotes and tall tales of the evening. Connors noticed that, after many of the stories, the man would chuckle and comment, quote, That's a muffera, end quote. Intrigued, Connors asked the man what exactly a muffera was. The man told Connors all about the legendary lumberjack Joe Muffera, who had lived in the Ottawa Valley in the mid-1800s. According to the old man, he was known for performing amazing feats of strength like kicking the roof off a tavern, cutting down a ten-inch tree with one swing, and single-handedly fighting off over 40 Irish lumberjacks. Connors commented that the tales of Joe Muffera sounded a lot like Paul Bunyan, and wondered if the Muffera legends had been influenced by the stories of the legendary American giant. The old man shook his head. It was the other way around, he said. According to the old man, Joe Muffera had inspired the stories of Paul Bunyan. Bunyan's famous blue ox, Babe, had originally been Joe Muffera's bullfrog. Now, that bit about inspiring the stories of Paul Bunyan is probably not true for a variety of reasons, but Connors could easily see that the whimsical charm and connection to the history of the region would make for a wonderful song. He wrote his first draft in the summer of 1967 while staying and playing at the legendary Mississippi Country Hotel in Carleton Place, Ontario. According to writer Charlie Rindress, Connors refined his song even further after meeting Bernie Bedore. Quote, In early 1970, Tom met a man named Bernie Bedore, who had written about Joe Muffera for a number of years. Tom accepted a small chapbook from the man, which included some of the Muffera tales. Tom wrote in the Connors' tone, quote, one of the stories in the pamphlet which I found especially interesting was the one where Joe Muffera had to swim both ways in a lake one day to catch a bass that was cross-eyed. I didn't know whether this was a Bedore creation or just one of the ongoing oral traditions he may have picked up somewhere." End quote. Tom included a line about this story in his song with the lyrics, He jumped in the Calabogie Lake real fast and he swam both ways to catch a cross-eyed bass. End quote. If the chapbook that Connors received was anything like Bedore's book, Tall Tales of Joe Muffera, it's easy to understand why he was so confused about the story's origin. I managed to track down a copy, and I can say that Bernie Bedore's stories are so creative, so full of life, and told in such a charming way that they feel right at home in an evening of time-honored tall tales. But I also think that they're presented in a way that implies that they are part, in the words of Tom Connors, of the ongoing oral tradition of the area. The book's subtitle is Whimsical Humor from Canada's Ottawa Valley, suggesting they belong more to the region and its people than just one author. The entire introduction is devoted to connecting Joe Montferrand to Joe Muffera, noting how the legendary French-Canadian will quote live forever in caricature through Bernie Bedore's greater-than-life character Joe Muffera, Canadian giant of woods and water, end quote. 
and how the book will, quote, remain forever a monument to Joe Montferrand, all-time giant of Canadian shanty and rivermen, athlete and true hero of Canada's younger days, end quote. Finally, Bedore's autobiography included on the back cover seems to contradict his claim that stories of Montferrand had vanished from the region, noting how, as a young boy, Bedore delighted in hearing old-timers share, quote, tales of earlier exploits, in particular adventures involving Big Joe Mufferaw, end quote. Tom Connors would go on to record his song just a few months later, and by the spring of 1970, Big Joe Mufferaw hit number one on the RPM country singles chart. The name of the song, and the inclusion of the lyrical cross-eyed bass, would prove problematic, however. According to Charlie Rindress, quote, Bedore sued Tom for plagiarism, asking for some sort of compensation. After Tom's lawyer sent a letter back disputing the claim, the suit was dropped, but the issue remained contentious. As late as 2000, Stompin' Tom's company was fighting the Bedore family over the trademark for Big Joe Mufferaw. Bedore's family maintains the rights, end quote. Now, here we find two key obstacles for our famous folk hero. First, the character of Big Joe Mufferaw may have his roots in both history and oral legend, but he is more akin to what folklorist Richard Dorson called fake lore, a product that at first seems to be authentic oral tradition, but is, in actuality, imitative and manufactured for popular consumption. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Dorson considered the stories of Paul Bunyan to be fake lore as well, since the vast majority of the stories known today were complete fabrications made up by lumber industry advertisers in the early 1900s. But while the original inspiration for Paul Bunyan seems to be lost to history, Joe Mufferaw is still connected to the real Joseph Montferrand. As we see in Stompin' Tom's song, the traditional tales of Joe fighting the Irish and kicking his heels into wooden ceilings are often told in the same breath as Bernie Bedore's fictional fabrications of gigantic beavers and cross-eyed fish. What's more, the connection between the character and the man is often deliberately celebrated by journalists, publishers, and the author himself. Perhaps nowhere is this connection more clearly spelled out than in Mythical Mufferaw, Bedore's final book featuring the character, where he writes, quote, I decided to build the mythical character of Joe Mufferaw bigger and bigger as a salute to my woods and river hero, Joseph Montferrat. I wanted to ensure his memory would never fade, end quote. It's hard to imagine how downplaying the history and emphasizing the mythical would do anything but muddy the memory of a real-life folk hero. But maybe that was the point. According to an article in the Ottawa Sun, Bedore's daughter, Judy, said that her dad, quote, was always fond and a little protective of his most famous creation. Some of the Montferrand stories, particularly the street-brawling yarns, worried him, end quote. It's a double-edged sword, really. Associating your fictional stories with a real historical figure can give them an air of authenticity, importance, and heritage. Suddenly, a silly story about a random giant lumberjack can feel more meaningful, which in turn translates to better sales. But that sense of meaning can also come with a price. Some people might be shocked when they learn that the historic counterpart to your kid-friendly character was a man who literally killed people. 
while others might insist you properly honor that historic figure by spelling his name correctly. The second obstacle is the fact that while the character of Paul Bunyan was never trademarked and his stories were never copyrighted, Joe Mufferaw is considered intellectual property. Though Joe Mufferaw seems to have been part of English-language oral traditions for at least a century beforehand, Bedora's company, Mufferaw Enterprises Limited, claimed ownership over both the name and the character. Now, that might surprise a lot of people, because the stories, the songs, and the few oral legends that are left can give the impression that Joe Mufferaw is so timeless and so ingrained in certain regional cultures that he can't be owned. Tom Connors certainly seemed to have gotten that impression. In the case of Paul Bunyan, the lack of copyright meant that multiple writers across America were able to share the same stories from the public domain and invent new ones, and that resulted in Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox surging in popularity throughout the 1910s and 20s, and hanging on for decades after, eventually becoming American icons featured in roadside statues, TV shows, video games, and Disney cartoons. Joe Mufferaw, on the other hand, is private property. I can't tell you my own Mufferaw tale because his name is apparently trademarked. And I can't tell you one of the stories found in Bernie Bedore's books because, unlike authentic folklore from oral tradition, those stories are modern, original, creative works that still fall under copyright law. Now, to be fair, one critic complained about the copyright back in the early 1980s, and to his credit, Bedore responded. He told the critic that he actually wanted to encourage people to share stories about Joe Mufferaw and explained, quote, Canada's copyright protection is merely a registration of a title which one can take to court of law to prove first ownership, end quote. He insisted, quote, I like to know that people tell the Mufferaw, end quote, and added that he asked his publisher to change the copyright notice in his books so that, quote, people would not be discouraged from telling the stories, end quote. That's great, but if the alleged interactions between the Bedore family and Stomp and Tom's company are any indication, I think it's probably best just to play it safe. And that's a shame, because no matter what you call him, Joe deserves better. More Canadians should know who Joe Montferrand was, what he did, and why it mattered. And they should also be able to celebrate and add to the whimsical, ridiculous stories that were inspired by generations of tall tales shared in both French and English. In her book, Giants of the Ottawa Valley, published in 1981, writer Joan Finnegan provides a brief biography of Joseph Montferrand and then summarizes a few oral legends collected from folks in the Ottawa Valley. Most of the stories came from the contributors' grandparents. Some are simple, some are whimsical, but all show the reverence that the people had for the legendary lumberjack. At the end of the chapter, Finnegan seems excited about the potential for the legends to develop even further, and likens that potential to a metaphor used by J.R.R. Tolkien to describe the evolution of a story. Tolkien imagined a people's folklore to be like a pot of soup where bits of history, figures, and devices of mythology were all combined and cooked together over time until something entirely new was created. According to Finnegan, the Mufferaw legends fit that description. She writes, quote, New writers will arrive on the scene and throw new bits and pieces into the pot of Joe Mufferaw's soup. 
A hundred years from now, nobody will know, as they say in the valley, where the truth lies." End quote. Today, over four decades later, we know that didn't really happen. Not much else has been added to that pot. Perhaps it's because the fire beneath that particular soup has been significantly cooled by modern copyright law. Or maybe it's simply that public taste has shifted, and stories of founding myths and colonizing giants are not as appetizing as they used to be. Three days after the Red Blacks announced their mascot's new name, the team made a second announcement. Their lovable mascot would shed his controversial surname and would be known simply as Big Joe in English and Grand Joe in French. Justifying the change, Hunt explained, quote, We're not in the business of offending people, so it just wasn't worth the fight, end quote. Some wondered why they didn't simply keep the name Big Joe Muffera for English-speaking fans and embrace Grand Joe Montferrat for French-speaking fans. I don't know for certain, but maybe they couldn't. The name Joe Muffera is ownable, licensable, and with its ties to Tom Connor's famous song, it has significant commercial value, as long as it remains reminiscent of, but perhaps legally distinct from, the historic hero Montferrat. Though the change was criticized by some, the majority of people seemed to praise the compromise as a way to be more inclusive of French Canadians, and to encourage a better understanding of the city's true history. From what I can tell, Bedora's books were never republished in cooperation with the Red Blacks, but Stompin' Tom's famous song is regularly played during halftime for thousands of fans who happily sing along. It remains the legendary singer's fourth most popular song on Spotify, just under Sudbury Saturday Night, Bud the Spud, and The Hockey Song. The true story of Joseph Montferrand remains relatively obscure, even in Quebec, though his name can be found on street signs in Gatineau and on the building that houses the Gatineau Courthouse and several Quebec government offices. Multiple giant statues of the man sit on both sides of the Ottawa River, in places like Mattawa, Gatineau, and Femme Rouge. South of the river, the statues are named either Joe Muffera or Joe Muffra. In the north, though the statues are equally giant, they have only one name, Joseph Montferrat. Back in the 1970s, with the publication of the ninth volume of the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, the authors openly wondered why Joseph Montferrand had come to be so respected and loved by French Canadians. They theorized that it had to do with the perceived cultural pressure that many Francophones felt at the time. Our hypothesis, they wrote, would be that the more a society feels weak and threatened, the more it clings to giants legends heighten a sense of importance. But I think there's more to it than that. Back in Montferrand's days, and for a long time after, there were countless well-known strongmen and giants who roamed Montreal, Bytown, and the greater Ottawa Valley, and featured in stories that were similar to Montferrand's, defeating champions, fighting off armies of assailants, kicking their boot heels into ceilings, one even wielded another man like a club, just as Montferrand did at the Battle of Union Bridge. But those stories never stuck like Joe's. The reason, I think, is context. Joseph Montferrand came to Bytown during a time of turmoil, of poverty, gang warfare, and social upheaval, 
participated in battles between Anglophones and Francophones, and gained the respect and admiration of both sides. He was renowned not just for his fighting skills, but for his leadership, bravery, and kindness, qualities that are necessary for a group of people to unify as a community and ultimately as a country. Joseph Montferrand was the right person for his time and place. And by studying his history and his stories, we can learn what it takes to be a hero, both in life and in legend. That's it for this episode. Special thanks to Patrick from the podcast Historia Canadiana for performing the roles of Joseph Montferrand and Wilfrid Laurier. Patrick and his co-host Mac do a great job diving into the cultural history of Canada, so give them a listen. And thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember... If you're ever wandering outside and see something out of place, high up on a cliff or in a tree, or if you find a giant boot heel in your garden, you might be walking in the footsteps of Big Joe. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams, with sound design by Brayden Alexander. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Key is our business manager. Jordan Heath-Rawlings is our executive producer. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.